This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we give you news from an African perspective, we are in Johannesburg in South Africa. Hello, welcome to the program. You can find us on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumalele Zondi and I'm with Onel Nzinti, Huisane Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Zambian opposition leader Hakainde Hichilema has been released from prison and treason charges against him dropped. Mass burials in Sierra Leone for victims of a mudslide that's claimed the lives of nearly 400 people. And the majority of suicide bombers used by Boko Haram to kill civilians are women and children. But first, let's get the news from Onel Nsinti. Thank you, Spoo. Kenya's opposition coalition, ASA, has confirmed that it will approach the Supreme Court to petition the outcome of the presidential elections. Former Prime Minister Arela Odinga has announced the decision. He says the petition will show evidence of the, court, of the manipulated results to slant victory in favor of President Uhuru Kenyatta. At least 600 people are still missing following a mudslide and flooding the devastated parts of Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown. The country's president, Ernest Abaye Koroma, has appealed for urgent help to support the thousands of people affected by the disaster. The mudslide, which trapped residents while they were sleeping, is thought to have traveled for two miles. Representative of the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, Mustafa Adialo. For the moment, we are concentrating our efforts, you know, in the rescue and church of survival as a race is against time to, to save communities. But uh, in parallel, we are also trying to, to, to accommodate, uh, you know, uh, homeless because uh, after seeing hundreds of houses destroyed, we, we have reported more than 2,000 people who are now uh, homeless in uh, in Freetown and they need shelter some civil society groups in South Africa have marched to Parliament as part of the Marikana Memorial Day, calling for a national public holiday to be officially granted for this day in remembrance of the massacre. Some of the protesters who took part in the march say it is necessary that the Minister of Justice Michael Masuta establish another commission of inquiry which will speak to the issue of the victims and the civil society groups about the event. Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe could be charged with attempted murder. The South African police are investigating a case of assault with intent to cause grievous bodily harm against Mugabe. This after she allegedly assaulted 20-year-old model Gabriella Engels with an an electrical extension cord at a hotel in the north of Johannesburg on Sunday. Engels received stitches on her face and head. There's still confusion as to the whereabouts of Mugabe after she failed to hand herself over to the police. She also did not appear in court as had been anticipated. 
Criminal law attorney Rian Lowe says due to the severity of the assault, an attempted murder charge is not off the table. I'm of opinion that it could even be a charge of possible uh, attempted murder. I mean, the, the, the court was held against this person's neck. He was cut marks on the neck. Um, I'm not so sure that it's just a normal case of grievously bodily harm. It, it can be a matter of, of, uh, of attempted murder, and attempted murder has got a five-year minimum sentence. And lastly, Zambian opposition leader Hakainde Hichilema has been freed from prison after state prosecutor dropped charges of plotting to overthrow the government. Judges have, however, warned him he could be arrested again at any time. Hichilema and five others were arrested in April and charged with treason after his convoy failed to make way for President Edgar Lungu's motorcade. The case has heightened political fiction in Zambia after a bruising election last year in which Lungu's patriotic front defeated Hichilema. Channel Africa News, I am Oni Linsinsi. Central African Time. Zambian opposition leader Hakainde Hichilema has been released from prison after the state dropped all treason charges against him and five others earlier today. The group was set to stand trial for treason in a case that threatened to rock a southern African country known for its relative stability. Hichilema, leader of the United Party for National Development, or UPND, had been in custody since April over an incident where he allegedly failed to give way to President Edgar Lungu's motorcade. Kumbero Mujadara has more. Zambia has enjoyed relative stability since its first multi-party election in 1991. But last year's election was marked by clashes between supporters of Lungu's Patriotic Front Party and the UPND. Ichilema claimed the vote was rigged and refused to recognize Lungu as the president of Zambia. The country's parliament suspended 48 UPND lawmakers after they boycotted Lungu's speech earlier this year. Lungu also invoked emergency powers in July, increasing police powers of arrest and detention after he blamed opposition parties for a string of arson attacks. Ichilema was arrested after he allegedly put Lungu's life in danger when his convoy failed to make way for the presidential motorcade in a high-speed road drama caught on video camera. The two men were both traveling to the western province for a traditional ceremony. Days later, more than 100 armed police surrounded Hichilema's house outside the capital, Lusaka, firing tear gas before detaining him and his aides. A businessman turned politician, Hichilema claimed he was assaulted by police during his arrest and suffered mistreatment in detention. Treason is an offense in Zambia that carries a minimum 15-year jail term and a maximum sentence of death. Lungu did not mince words during the election campaign, warning political rivals and activists that if they push him against the wall, he will sacrifice democracy for peace. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjerere in Johannesburg. At least 600 people are still missing following a mudslide and flooding that devastated parts of Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown. The country's president has appealed for urgent help to support the thousands of people affected by the disaster. The mudslide, which trapped residents while they were sleeping, is thought to have traveled for two miles. More from Mustafa Diallo of the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Christian Societies. You know, we are experiencing a very big humanitarian crisis in the Sierra Leone. 
and uh, our team have uh, removed with the army and also with the uh, government more than uh, 170 bodies. Many of them are children and at least 600 people are still missing. The mugs are overflowing with dead bodies and local authorities keeping them in various community facilities using uh, local chemicals to prevent decay. The number of casualties is likely to rise as search and rescue operations continue. Just how difficult is the rescue operation? How are Red Cross volunteers finding it in terms of trying to recover as many bodies or try to locate people who are missing? You see, after this mudslide, communication in and around the capital city is paralyzed as roads turn into a shining river of mud and debris. But our Red Cross team, you know, together with other partners, have been doing their best to remove bodies trapped into the debris and provide medical care to the injured. I'm glad you touch on the sort of assistance that you are providing to people who have been affected or survivors. And are you also helping them with regards to accommodation, given that um, many of these people's homes are now destroyed? How, um, what's happening in terms of getting them accommodation? You know, hundreds of houses have been uh, destroyed by the, by the catastrophe. And uh, for the moment, we are uh, concentrating our efforts, you know, in the rescue and church of survival as a race is against time to to save communities but uh, in parallel we are also trying to accommodate you know homeless because uh, after seeing hundreds of houses destroyed we have reported more than 2000 people who are now homeless in Freetown and they need shelter it's very urgent they need shelter they need water and and sanitation they need food they need also household materials. We at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, uh, we are working uh, with the Sierra Leone Red Cross to scale up our response in, in the country. And of course, we will need uh, support to do that. That is Mustafa Diallo, representative of the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. He was on the line from Dakar in Senegal in conversation with Jane Harabotata. Meanwhile, authorities in Sierra Leone say rescue workers have recovered nearly 400 bodies from Monday's mudslide on the outskirts of the capital, Freetown. The number of dead is expected to rise. More from the BBC's correspondent, Umaru Fofana, who spent time at a mortuary which is running out of space. I went to the central mortuary in Freetown at Connaught and it was a very gut-wrenching experience for me. For a minute I stepped inside the morgue, I almost felt like stepping back. Not that I had not anticipated the sheer size and scale of this mudslide and its uh, ramifications, but I did not expect that I would see so many corpses lying on the bare floor outside of the real mortuary, not in fridges not in freezers, lying outside because the mortuary itself had been stretched to its limits. And I saw these bodies, some of them were limbless, lying there. I counted hundreds and I lost count. I felt really very touched. I mean, I would let us step outside to make sense of what I had seen. 
this was a real picture of what this mudslide has left in its wake. And I went to the scene of the disaster and uh, excavators were still struggling. It's officially still called a rescue mission, but it seems like a recovery one because all they kept digging up were corpses and the ambulances were very busy ferrying those corpses to the mortuary. A very heart-wrenching experience for me yesterday. And how were the morgue workers coping? Because I can't imagine that there was anything that they could actually do. By their own admission, they have been stretched to the limits. Dr. Oiz Koroma, who's been the pathologist for the hospital for several decades, said that he had seen nothing like this, not during the rebel war, not during Ebola, which cost a lot of lives. This was like a short, sharp shock. It all happened in just a few hours. And those corpses have been rushed into the mortuary in just a couple of days. I mean, he himself was debilitated. There were some volunteer workers, some of them uh, from the um, fire services, they were in their protective gear, their hazmat, hazmat suits, helping to clean the place. The fire force guys came and they tried to wash the place. And I saw rivers of blood as those cleaners continue to clean up the place and pile up the bodies to sort them out, as they called it, and try to issue death certificates before they would be allowed to be buried en masse. Part of that is supposed to happen today. The acting information minister, Cornelius Devo, says that between 9 o'clock and 5 p.m. today, families will be expected to identify their corpses. And I would imagine that would draw very, very raw emotions when those family members go there to identify the corpses of their loved ones and get them ready for a mass burial. Emotions are bound to really be drawn today again. And what is the atmosphere like in Freetown itself? It's somber. Okay, I've never seen such somber mood in offices since the end of the Ebola outbreak. And the sheer speed with which these people lost their lives is what has troubled a lot of people. I went to a few offices yesterday that were talking about nothing but this disaster. People could barely work in their offices. I mean, raw emotions. People are very, very much troubled by this incident. That is BBC correspondent Umaru Fofana speaking to Ngem Efechika, also from the BBC. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. My name is Spumalele Zondi. Info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za on email. The majority of suicide bombers that the terrorist group Boko Haram uses to kill civilians are women and children. This is the latest finding by researchers at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point in the United States of America and Yale University. According to the institution study of the 434 suicide 
suicide bombers Boko Haram has deployed since April 2011, 244% were identified as female. 81 of the bombers were identified as children and teenagers, four times as many were girls. Just yesterday, three suspected Boko Haram female suicide bombers blew themselves up and killed 27 people in northeastern Nigeria. Senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, Martin Ewi, says the terrorist group has suddenly realized the value of previously marginalized women. What we have learned is that women in many places, especially when it comes to social places like markets and other public areas where, you know, people are gathered, women are often not the first people to be suspicious of when it comes to terrorism. And therefore, especially children, you know, children are not known to participate in terrorist uh, attacks or especially carry bombs with them. Therefore, Boko Haram has really exploited this purposely to access tough targets, to conceal, because uh, again, uh, you know, terrorism operates on the basis of concealment. If they cannot conceal, if they are in the open, if they are easily detected, there are the chances or the probability that that attack will not succeed. So, yes, I do agree with the finding, and I know the main reason for choosing women, one is for their accessibility, the fact that they are not easily dictated. There is also, you know, the fact that it is easy to recruit these women through force. You look at Boko Haram's recruitment strategy now, is through kidnapping. So women, again, come very handy. It's uh, easy to kidnap women, uh, take them to wherever you want, and then convert them to, to Islam or train them to be suicide bombers. The report does suggest that Boko Haram started using women suicide bombers after it realized the potency that gender and youth offer in raising its global profile after the Chibok kidnappings. Absolutely. So again, we have that Chibok kidnapping syndrome, which, you know, suddenly Boko Haram discovered the value of women. If you look just, uh, I think, last Tuesday, actually, where, you know, they carry out a kidnapping of 39 people, 33 of them were women. There is still that strong attachment. And uh, despite the shouting or, you know, the condemnation of the kidnapping of the Chibok girls, Boko Haram has continued to kidnap girls, even way more than boys, because of that media attention, because of the value that has been given to women, or what I call these women have now become the golden girls of Boko Haram because of, you know, the value that they bring to the group. Does this mark a shift in ideology which had previously denied women from taking frontline roles in battle? You know, when Boko Haram started, women were untouchable. They would try to spare women. They would not even want to get women involved. But, you know, as security gets tougher, the terrorist group also need to invent strategies to crack those security measures. And therefore, they discovered that women will be best, you know, in assessing certain very tough security targets. So, yes, they have changed their modus operandi, their tactics, just like uh, ISIS also started using women. 
though Boko Haram has taken the phenomenon to a different scale. Data on the recruitment of women and their radicalization for violence as suicide bombers is generally unscientific. There is evidence, as you said, indicating that many female bombers do not volunteer to kill themselves. They are coerced. But is there evidence that supports how exactly they are made to go about this? I think the evidence is still emerging. You you are right that we don't have enough evidence to really support this. But take for example, it is true they are coerced, but only a very small minority of women actually join Boko Haram voluntarily. What we have noticed is that many of those who carry out suicide bombing have been coerced and dropped to do so. Recently, Cameroon stopped a shipment of drugs that were destined to Boko Haram. And these drugs they used actually to drug people, to join them or to suddenly start believing in their ideology, suddenly, you know, give up and then uh, become members. And then these are also individuals that will willingly accept uh, suicide bombing through the use of these drugs. So it's, um, it's uh, something that it's been proven slowly, and I think this discovery in Cameroon was extremely important, and it has uh, shed some light in terms of what goes on within this group, how these suicide bombers are converted, how women are coerced and, you know, dropped into becoming suicide bombing. Martin Ewi is senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, and he was talking to Selena Dobong. Here in South Africa, an inquiry into the death of anti-apartheid activist Ahmed Timo has been taking place at the High Court in Pretoria. Mr. Timo died 46 years ago after he was arrested at a roadblock. An initial inquest the following year ruled that the activist committed suicide by leaping from the 10th floor of a Johannesburg police station. However, his family believe he was murdered and have campaigned for decades for a new probe to overturn the verdict. This is the first inquest in the democratic South Africa that looks into apartheid deaths in police custody. The BBC's Nomsama Sego reports. I'm standing outside the Johannesburg Central Police Station on the fringes of the city. It's a 10-story, imposing concrete building. During the dark days of apartheid, it was known as John Foster Square Police Station. It was the most feared of all South African police stations and earned a reputation as a site of torture and brutality. Ahmed Timor was brought here in October 1971. He never made it out alive. Ahmed Timor did not commit suicide. He was rather killed in police custody. Imtiaz Kaji is Ahmed Timol's nephew. After 46 years of tireless effort by his family, South African prosecutors ruled last year that there was sufficient evidence to reopen the inquest into his death. We owe it to the honor and legacy of my beloved uncle and my grandmother, who, when she testified at the original inquest in 1972, Magistrate de Villiers branded her a liar when she narrated to the court that the security branch officer had told her that she had failed to give her son a hiding. And they were going to give him a hiding, and a day or so later, they came back with the news that he had jumped to his death and committed suicide. Mr. Timor's friend, Salim Esop, who was arrested alongside him, is one of those who've testified at the new inquest. He told the judge that he'd caught a glimpse of his friend on the 10th floor a few days after their arrest. There's a hood on Ahmed Timol's uh, head, mm. right? 
and Bhagavati Boy is walking like this. It's, it's very, very slow. You see, you see this movement here, like that. Right? And they're holding because he can't do it. His testimony was in sharp contrast to the version presented at the 1972 inquest, where police witnesses claimed Mr. Timol had been healthy enough to walk across a room, open a closed window, hoist himself and dive out. Joao Rodriguez, a sergeant in the apartheid regime security police, was present in the room when Mr. Ahmed Timol plunged to his death. He's sticking by what he said in the original inquest. He spoke to the court in Afrikaans through an interpreter. You did not have a conversation with him. I did not see any injuries sustained on his body. I did not utter a word with him. Then, in the corner of my eye, I saw a movement. And then I got up, very fast, and tried to move as fast as I could. But Timol was at that time moving through the window. Police also claimed Mr. Timol's alleged suicide was provoked by a Communist Party doctrine. But a former intelligence minister and member of the underground Communist Party in the 1970s, Ronnie Casrills, disputed this. Your Lordship, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If that were the case, people like Mandela and Susulu and Billy Nyer, and we could reel off name after name after name, would have attempted something of that kind, possibly. Absolutely not. South Africans are paying close attention. As Mr. Timol's nephew, Imtiaz Kaji, tells me, if the original verdict is overturned, it could reignite interest in other suspicious apartheid-era deaths. It's a moral responsibility of the government of the day not only to reopen the inquest of Ahmed Timor, but to reopen the inquest of all other political detainees, to assess all other families who till today are searching for answers. This momentum is going to continue growing so that at the end of the day, government fulfills its obligatory responsibility. The report is by the BBC's Nomsama Seko. Closing arguments in the Timor case are expected at the end of this week. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1. That's Channel Numerical 1 if you are looking for us on Twitter. More than 1,000 people from the Southern African region will be meeting over the next two days in Johannesburg, South Africa, in what is known as the SADC People's Summit. The People's Summit, arranged by the Southern African People's Solidarity Network, is a forum for organizations and social movements to meet parallel to the SADC Heads of State meeting currently taking place in Pretoria. For the next two days, delegates will deliberate over a host of critical issues affecting the region and given scanned requirements God at the intergovernment deliberations. Channel Africa spoke to Iham Raoud, the Southern Africa coordinator at the Alternative Information and Development Center, one of the organizers of the summit about the event and its objectives. The People Summit is a way of bringing organizations and movements and communities from the region together to build solidarity and provide a space where they can form collaborations, where they can mobilize and create, uh, provide assemblies and sessions that help to build solidarity for people within SADC and to strengthen their struggle. Now tell us what will be the main highlight of the summit. 
for me, the main highlight is the session that I'm coordinating, and it, it is quite a, a big thing at the uh, summit, is the Permanent People's Tribunal on Transnational Corporations. So this is, um, as the, the Permanent People's Tribunal sort of institution has been around since the 70s, and it, it, I don't know if you know the Russell Tribunal on Palestine, so. for example, is a Permanent People's Tribunal. So this is the second session of the, of the Tribunal on Transnational Corporation. The first one was during the summit last year in Manzini. And what happens is that we have, uh, again, the, the formal... Uh, official ways that people are that people have in order to present their cases and get some sort of justice is clearly not working for us. The courts are definitely not working. So this is a way for people to present their cases to other people and to a panel of very respected jurors who are have been involved in activism. Um, and what they do is they present. There's going to be seven cases of communities from Madagascar, Mauritius. Zambia, Mozambique, Malawi, that's it. They're going to be presenting cases on Parmalat is one of the cases, and that would be how the dairy company undermines the work of and the livelihoods of women dairy farmers. Then there'll be Monsanto, which is also quite a big company that we all know of for their human rights violations, and that will be around food input subsidies. There will be a case on illicit financial flows, specifically in Mauritius, and how Mauritius is building itself more and more as a tax haven where money that should be going to people of Southern Africa is being sent away by companies. And after delegates have deliberated, what are you going to do with the recommendations that will be taken after the summit? What comes out of the summit is that uh, over the next two days, a report will be created out of the demands that come, which will then be handed to SADC in Pretoria on Friday when the actual summit closes. And from that, it would, again, it's, a, it's the people of demand, and there's a, we just keep building solidarity, and we keep on holding summits like these, and we keep on working together to strengthen the struggle because ultimately it's very clearly a people struggle because it's not really working for us. That is Iham Raoud from the Alternative Information and Development Center on the line from Johannesburg in South Africa. Talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjarare. It is now time for your news headlines. Here's Onel Nsinzi. Kenya's opposition coalition, NASA, confirms that it will approach the Supreme Court to petition the outcome of the presidential elections. At least 600 people are still missing following a mudslide and flooding the devastated parts of Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown. And Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe claims diplomatic immunity after being accused of assaulting a 20-year-old South African model. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Tsinsi. Thank you very much, Onele, for that update. 
In May 2000, the U.S. Congress approved a piece of legislation called the African Growth and Opportunity Act, or AGOA. The purpose of this was to assist the economies of sub-Saharan Africa and to improve economic relations between the U.S. and the region. After completing its initial 15-year period of validity in 2015, the AGOA legislation was extended by a further 10 years to 2025. Last week, senior government officials from the U.S. and sub-Saharan African countries met in Lome in Togo at a three-day forum to discuss ways to boost economic cooperation and trade between them. One of the delegates was Brian Newbert, director of the U.S. Department of State's Africa Regional Media Hub. He paid a visit to our studios to tell us more about the meeting and look at the status of AGOA 17 years after its inception. AGOA is doing really well. With AGOA, the, the door is open to the U.S. market. Tariffs on thousands and thousands of products are eliminated. In 2016, non-oil exports from Africa to the United States were $4.2 billion. That represents many tens of thousands of jobs in Africa and is a key piece of Africa's economic development. But we can do a lot more. There's huge potential and the discussions in, in Lome where we had a really terrific meetings hosted by the government of Togo, the key was to look at what are the opportunities, what are the obstacles, and how can we do better. To just look back again why this was signed into law, the purpose of the legislation was to assist the economies of sub-Saharan Africa and to improve economic relations between the U.S. and the region. I believe that the president can basically every year revisit who is eligible to be an Agawa country. Are things going well? Is the African economy strong? Are there lots of interest from both sides to keep the ties going? There's tremendous interest. The United States is still the largest market in the world. It's not the easiest market to access from Africa because of logistics and transportation and some of the rules, but 38 African countries are eligible. There are some standards, some governance and other requirements, and and there is a process each year where where countries have to be approved. So 38 African countries uh, participating. It has been, as I said, a, a very big success, but we think many more jobs can be created, much more investment can be attracted in order to take advantage. The African economies are generally doing very well. They still need to diversify. The U.S. market is not the only one that they'll export to. They should trade with each other. They should trade with Europe. They should trade with Asia. And they are doing so. Each country has a plan of action. And we accompany the entrepreneurs in Africa within the context of those plans of action in order to really help them maximize the potential. What benefits are they basically? Are imports and exports duty-free? What does it mean in practice? The AGOA legislation is very specific. It's a one-way deal. It's not a free trade agreement, so it's not reciprocal. The United States gets nothing in return other than the hope that these countries can develop. But it, it, exactly, it, it eliminates the tariff on some 6,000 or more products. There are a few items that are not accepted. There are a few rules. For example, Ambassador Lighthizer granted a visa it's called, to the Togolese while he was in Lome for textiles and apparel. And and what that visa means, there's already been uh, tariffs eliminated, but a country has to show that they can guard against illegal transshipment. In other words, the, the rules of origin for clothing, you couldn't bring clothing in from another country, label it made in Togo and get the benefit. So a visa allows Togo to export and and to grow uh, an apparel industry. And apparel is labor-intensive. It is light manufacturing. It's small and scalable investment. It's a really key step in development. You've seen in Kenya, Madagascar, certainly here in South Africa, countries have taken advantage of this opportunity to export to the United States. It's a very, obviously, well-developed 
community of buyers and department stores and so on that source from all over the world. And so that's one of the details when it comes to AGOA. But then there are all of these other complementary activities. There's the Millennium Challenge Corporation in Togo will do a threshold compact on things like land reform and on the IT sector. There are trade hubs run by the U.S. Agency for International Development. As I said earlier, one of those hubs in East Africa is in Las Vegas with representatives from six countries at something called the Magic Show. And that's where there are buyers who are looking for new ideas for clothing, looking for new fashion. And there are representatives from six different or seven different African countries there with their products, looking to sign deals, looking to sign contracts. And we're helping them. And we do that in West Africa. We do that in Southern Africa. Um, and there are a handful of other agencies that do small technical things, offer expertise, offer small loans to accompany these country plans of action because it won't happen on its own. It hasn't happened on its own to really scale up and make sure that the last eight years, as you say, through 2025, the potentials really maximize in terms of economic development. Since this was brought onto the table in 2000, there's been four administrations, Clinton, Bush, Obama, now Donald Trump. I think there were fears from certain African countries when Mr. Trump came on board that trade might be stifled and not be as open as what they are used to. There was tremendous enthusiasm in Lome. There is uh, great enthusiasm for the economic priorities of the current administration. For Ambassador Lighthizer, who is our U.S. trade representative, he's the top trade negotiator in the Trump administration, he spent two days in Lome. He was there discussing with counterparts, understanding, again, the opportunities and the challenges that AGOA faces. One of the things that we have looked at and continue to look at more are U.S. export opportunities to Africa. So we do want to make it two-way, even though AGOA is primarily our door being open. But there's an, a tremendous role, whether it's U.S. exports or U.S. investments, there's a tremendous role for our products and services in modernizing African economies. So that's in our interest in the interest of our companies and our exporters, but it's certainly uh, also in the interest of these African economies. To conclude, in a nutshell, coming from Lomé, what were the most important, really lucrative ideas from the three-day meeting and the way forward now from Lomé until the next meeting? Well, I think certainly apparel and textiles, which is a very commonly traded item. The margins are very small. It's a very difficult industry. Of course, China for a very long time has been the low-cost producer. Vietnam is also a low-cost producer. But African countries increasingly can compete, particularly with those AGOA advantages. But it's clear that the role of civil society who were present and of the private sector is very important to policymakers, African and American, to understand what is happening on the ground. What are the obstacles that these groups are meeting to trying to export more? And so it will be things that you would be surprised Wigs, for example, you know, where do we buy our wigs? Where are they, where are they made? Togo exports a, a tremendous amount of, of, of wigs to the United States. So uh, fashion accessories, interior design, anything that is potentially low cost to be competitive, certainly anything creative, anything in agriculture, the agricultural potential across Africa is enormous. And so these goods are more productive. American businesses, whether they're sourcing and, and importing from Africa or looking to export to the African market, they're paying more and more attention other parts of the world are becoming more expensive. And so the opportunity is there for African enterprises. And as I said, AGOA means the door is open. We accompany these entrepreneurs in a number of different ways and then just try to see where the market can lead them. And I think the sky's the limit for the remaining eight years. That's the voice of Brian Newbert, director of the U.S. Department of States Africa's Regional Media Hub, talking to Channel Africa's Jenin Kutze.
Countries are this week marking the first ever fungal disease awareness week, killing over 1.5 million and affecting over a billion people. Medical experts say fungal diseases have been a neglected topic by public health authorities. However, most deaths from fungal diseases are avoidable. More serious fungal infections are hidden from the public view, occurring as a consequence of other health problems that weaken the immune system such as HIV, AIDS, TB and cancer. In our weekly look at health issues, we focus attention on why it's important to mark Fungal Disease Awareness Week and uh, the theme, Think Fungus. More from Professor Nilesh Gavinder, head of the Center for Opportunistic Tropical and Hospital Infections at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa. We want to acknowledge the public health importance of serious fungal diseases And really we want to highlight the importance of recognizing these diseases early enough so that life-saving treatment can be provided. And so for this reason, the 14th to the 18th of August has been named Fungal Disease Awareness Week. Now, for the benefit of some of our listeners who don't know, what causes fungal diseases and who's most affected? That's a very good question. So fungi are microscopic germs that either live in or on the human body, but are also found in the environment. So what's really important to remember is that antibiotics, which are medicines that treat bacterial infections, don't treat fungal or viral infections. And so for fungal infections, you need special antifungal medicines. Superficial fungal infections are very common fungal infections of the skin and also of the mucosal cavities. Examples would be uh, ringworm infections and also thrush infections. So those are very, very common. And in fact, it's been estimated that up to a billion people, in fact, are affected by these superficial fungal infections. We're most concerned from a public health point of view about the serious fungal infections. And these are infections that I suppose could be described as hidden from public view because they tend to occur in people with weakened immune systems. So as an example, patients with HIV AIDS may develop very serious fungal infections. Patients with AIDS may develop a fungal brain infection called cryptococcal meningitis. And serious fungal infections, in fact, may account for up to 80% of AIDS-related deaths. Are you finding that there's a rise in these serious fungal infections or is it difficult to establish the extent of the problem? We do believe that the number of cases of serious fungal infections is in fact increasing and that's largely because the number of people at risk for these infections is increasing. As medicine becomes better at prolonging people's lives, as new interventions are established, for example, transplants, you know, life-saving medicines for cancers keep people alive for longer. And so with the advances in modern medicine, we see that patients with weakened immune systems become more at risk for these serious fungal infections. Let's talk about the link between fungal diseases and climate change. Is it known if the climate's changing is somehow causing these diseases to thrive? So there is no data, as far as I'm aware, on the impact of climate change and fungal infections on a global perspective. There have been some research papers published on the expanding range of some fungal infections. So it's possible that some fungal infections which 
were restricted to tropical areas, may have moved to other areas, but it's not a particularly well-researched area. How easy or difficult is it to identify the symptoms of these diseases? What do they look like? So, as I mentioned, the serious fungal infections usually occur in people with very weak immune systems. They either occur among people who are still in the community or people who are very sick in hospital. So, in the community, for example, if someone is HIV infected and hasn't started antiretroviral treatment, they're at risk for cryptomeningitis, that fungal brain infection I mentioned earlier. The symptoms of that are very dramatic. Patients develop a severe headache, which progressively gets worse over weeks to months, and that headache doesn't get any better. Patients will also develop nausea and vomiting. They may have problems with seeing and hearing. Inevitably, they'll need hospital admission and treatment with life-saving antifungal medicines. How are fungal diseases diagnosed and how important is it to recognize them early? Absolutely important to recognize them early. And this is one of the pivotal public health interventions that's necessary. We need to make sure that fungal diseases are diagnosed early enough. Fungal diseases, especially the serious ones, must be diagnosed in a laboratory. And so the appropriate laboratory tests need to be offered and doctors and nurses need to ask for those tests to be performed so that a fungal disease can be diagnosed quickly. Obviously, in many parts of the world, there isn't access to very good laboratory infrastructure. And so there's a concerted effort to develop simpler methods to diagnose fungal infections. As an example... Cryptomeningitis can now be diagnosed with a dipstick test, which is as simple to perform as a pregnancy test, and that can be performed when a patient presents to care and a nurse or doctor can do that type of test at the bedside. How real is the threat of antifungal resistance? I'm very glad that you mentioned that. I think that we know that antimicrobial resistance in general is an enormous global threat. And so most people tend to focus on antibiotic resistance, which is really resistance of bacteria to medicines. But of course, fungal pathogens are treated with antifungal medicines. And so we are seeing in South Africa a growing epidemic of fungal infections which are resistant to the first-line antifungal medicine. So it's becoming a substantial problem. And we see hundreds to possibly thousands of cases each year, which are very difficult to treat with first-line antifungal medicines. And the problem really is that there are very, very few antifungal medicines available for treatment of serious fungal infections. And how can we create more education and awareness, Professor, around the impact of fungus on health? I mean, I think this week is a good point. So this week is really an opportunity to have healthcare practitioners, nurses and doctors, pharmacists, to think about fungal infections, if their patients have symptoms that aren't improving with treatment, especially patients with weak immune systems. And it's also an opportunity to get people with fungal infections or with any infections to think about fungi if their symptoms are not getting better with treatment and to talk to their doctor and nurse about the possibility of a fungal infection. That is uh, Professor Nilesh Kavanda, head of the Center for Opportunistic Tropical and Hospital Infections at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidecha. It is now time for your economics. Here's with Sanima Tabula.
Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. Nigeria has started a 41 billion US dollar railway expansion to reduce their dependence on oil and diversify its struggling economy by improving transport links to allow the movement of goods around the country and to ports. Africa's biggest oil producer is going through its worst economic slump in 25 years following a plunge in the price and output of oil, which accounts for more than 90% of foreign income and two-thirds of government revenue. President Muhammadu Buhari's economic recovery and growth plan presented in March this year seeks to boost agriculture and manufacturing by developing the country's transport network and power infrastructure. The West African nation is opening up its rail system to private investors following decades of government control. Meanwhile, Nigerian stocks declined for a third consecutive day and reached a 16-day low as more investors cashed in on profits after recent gains. The main index ended down 2.68% at 36,102 points, which is the lowest since August 1st, reflecting concerns that the market has grown too rapidly in the last two months. The market rallied for eight consecutive weeks and peaked at 33-month high last week before profit takers took advantage of the gains to sell their holdings. Traders said a sharp rise in the market in the last few weeks was as a result of increased demand for equities by offshore funds with fresh mandates from their clients. And ratings agency Moody's has given its opinion on South Africa's economic growth prospects pointing to the dangers of growth due to rising policy uncertainty, high unemployment and high public debt. Moody's is also of the opinion that it's unlikely that a political consensus will be reached to support growth in the economy, especially in the face of political tensions within the ANC. Moody's expects South Africa's economy to grow by 0.5% this year. Economist uh, with BNP Paribas, Jeff Schultz. Um, so indicating in particular uh, that further delays in growth enhancing reforms would be suggestive um, of another shift downwards in the rating um, and certainly if uh, uh, the strength and independence of institutions continue to erode um, that it would certainly be one of the ma- main factors uh, in prompting a further downgrade. And CEO of mining division in Lonmen, Ben Magara, has appealed to all mining stakeholders to ensure that what happened in 2012 in Marikana does not repeat itself. On this day five years ago, 34 mine workers employed by the world's biggest platinum producer, Lonmen, were killed by the police at the infamous Kopi near Wunderkop in South Africa's northwest province. The miners embarked on an unprotected witch strike. Magara says what happened in 2012 should be a lesson that the miners' labor disputes should be taken seriously. We surely hope that all stakeholders can take it from here and grow it into something that we can all be proud of one day and remember our, our 44 colleagues that indeed this will never happen again, but they gave us, their blood has given us a life even bigger and better than we ever imagined before that. Namibia's central bank has cut its benchmark lending rate by 25 basis points to 6.7%, citing the need to support economic growth and maintain the one-to-one link between the Namibian dollar and the South African rand. Namibia's economy slipped into a recession the first quarter of the year, shrinking by 2.7% in the quarter, following a 1.4% contraction in the last quarter of 2016. 
Financial indicators say the dollar at 13.31 South African rand at 10.15 Botswana Pula and 8.96 Zambian Kwacha. Trading also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.85 against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,272, platinum $959 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $51.05 per barrel. That's your economics news. It is now time for your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with your latest sports news at the Sour. And starting off with the cricket news, Proteus batsman Hashimamla insists that there's a great support from the players for Russell Domingo, despite growing speculation that the national coach is set to be replaced. Now, Cricket South Africa have been conducting interviews with several candidates who have applied for the post over the last month. The country's mother body had advertised the post earlier this year as Domingo's contract was coming to an end with a 42-year-old also reapplying for his job. England bowling coach Otis Gibson is favourite for the role, but Amla says there was still support for Russell Domingo. I don't know what Russell's future is. All I know is that there's a great support for Russell because, uh, I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's done well with the team, but there's things that are out of our hands. I mean, we don't know what's going on. Um, all we know is, oh, actually, we don't even know much. <laughs> Yeah. On to football news, South African assistant coach Tabo Sunong will steer the national team in the Chan qualifier with Zambia in Indola on Saturday, possibly with the help of Bafana Bafana legend Quinton Fortune. Fortune is currently in talks with the South African Football Association regarding joining the technical team of head coach Stuart Baxter. Baxter will remain in the country this weekend to focus his attention on the upcoming back-to-back World Cup qualifiers against Cape Verde. The first match takes place on the 1st of September in Cape Verde, but the next fixture four days later at the Moses Mabida Stadium in the KwaZulu-Natal province. Meanwhile, the squad departs for Zambia this coming Thursday, having drawn the first leg 2-0 in East London last weekend. The rematch will take place at the Levi Mwanawasa Stadium. South African University woman football captain Rifi Lwejane is confident her team can improve on the dismal showing of the 2015 Games in South Korea. The team will take part in the 29th edition of the World Student Games in Taipei, Taiwan from this coming Saturday up until the 31st of this month. Now the team finished fourth in the 2013 Games in Russia but disappointed when they finished in um, position 14 two years ago and Jane is looking for a massive improvement this time around. Yes, uh, in 2015 we didn't do well as a team. Uh, we had a completely new team then. But coming into the, these, this year's games, we have uh, quite a young team, uh, a hungry team more. And we, we're looking forward to performing better and improving on the performance of the previous teams. Because I know that in 2013 the team came out fourth position, of which it was a standard that was set very high. So we're looking forward to, to doing better and making sure that we achieve the standard or go beyond that. 
Well, South Africa is in the same group as Great Britain and Russia, whom they play on Thursday and Saturday, respectively. Great Britain won the Games in 2013 and Russia were runner-ups two years ago. Janet believes they stand a good chance of reaching the knockout stages. Based on the group that we're in, we stand a very good chance of progressing to the next group, to the next stage. Uh, we know that uh, Russia is not an easy team to beat. They've been winners before, they've been runners-up also, and they always come here to to win. So we also want to do that. We don't want to add numbers only. We, We came here with a mission to progress out of the cup stages. And finally, in wheelchair tennis news, South Africa's top women's wheelchair tennis player, Khotazo Monjane, says she is happy to have qualified for her eighth Grand Slam tournament, joining the top seven ranked women among the field of 20 for the 2017 U.S. Open wheelchair tennis competition in New York. The South African qualified to join the elite group after world number three, Jeske Grufford from the Netherlands, withdrew from the tournament. This will be Monjane's third time competing at at the Grand Slam event after reaching the quarterfinal stages back in 2013 as well as 2014. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, I'm excited. It's unexpected. The one player had to pull out, even though I couldn't get the wild card in number eight. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to be going back to, to take part in such a prestigious event. For the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories at 1756 Central African time. The Zambian opposition leader Hakainde Hitulema has been released from prison and treason charges against him dropped. And mass burials held today in Sierra Leone for victims of mudslides that claimed the lives of nearly 400 people. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Manel Zondi, producer Jenin Kutze, technical producer Wiseman Mangaila, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, plus 27-796-957-930, plus 27-796-957-930. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Kanapongoman with the song titled Lady.